I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many Many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts, the medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> we that are, is that, that is it started did that i do it so good have we, have we have we opened the podcast yet i Jesus mean Christ. yeah i i it, you did it we're here I'm robert evans champion podcast opener winner of the nobel prize for starting his own podcast with atonal grunting um this is a podcast about bad people, the worst in all of history, and today we have a real, real doozy of a son of a bitch to talk about, uh, and to talk about this this just exquisite asshole is Courtney Kosak! Courtney, you are one of the hosts of Private Parts Unknown, uh, and you have a an essay collection coming out soon, is that correct? Uh well, I'm hoping to sell it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's been written. <laughs> so That is the first step. <laughs> totally. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's about uh uh hawking t-shirts on the Girls Gone Wild tour. So wild Oh shit. Experience. That sounds that sounds like a life experience. Yeah. Twenty one. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. I'm just gonna guess a lot of Keystone Light involved in that tour. <laughs> <laughs> Good guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I too went to college in the early aughts. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. Uh, Courtney, how do you feel about obstetricians? Uh, pretty good. 
pretty good. Pretty They're good. helpful people. Can be helpful people. Can be. Can, can be. be helpful people. Oh, keyword on this podcast. Keyword. Yeah. How do you feel about like like vaginas? It just as a just as like a like a like in terms of the way they're they're structured. I did previously tell Court that I (laughs) picked her for this episode specifically. I'm honored already. (laughs) Oh yeah, just wait. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Court. How do you feel about vaginas? Like structurally. Structurally. <laughs> I don't have a problem with vaginas. I okay, feel like yeah. society maybe does, but society has some issues with them. I think they're they're they seem they seem fine. Um but what if I were to tell you the decades ago, some random dude with a medical degree decided he'd figured out a better way to design vaginas. And then what if I were to tell you that he decided to test his theories by surgically altering the vaginas of thousands of women without asking for their consent? No. <laughs> no. Oh, that's a bad one. Yeah. That is the story we're going to tell today. It is the tale of Dr. James Burt, uh, who sucked, and unless he's died by the time this episode runs, still sucks. I think he's alive in Florida still, which makes sense as to where this guy would be. Huh. Um He's really he hits the he hits the the difecta of of shitty American places because he was he he did all of his crimes in Ohio and then he fled to Florida when he got caught. So it's a real perfect story. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Is he still down in Florida redesigning vaginas? He is no, no, no. He is not allowed to do anything vaguely medical ever again. Um oh god. Well, that's but good. Yeah, I mean, that's broadly positive. He didn't re- get the punishment that I think would have been fair. Um, but he's 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 pr- maybe still alive. It's kind of hard to tell. He's he's kept a low profile since getting caught. Um, well, getting caught is the wrong word because he wrote a book about what he was doing and had no shame in it. And it, it's it's a it's a tale. It's a tale. Are you ready to hear the story of James Doctor? Sorry, James Burt. Ew. Yeah, be respectful. Yeah, I can't yeah. wait. <laughs> the man earned his MD, you know? <laughs> okay, so James Caird Burt Jr. was born on August 29th, 1921 in Dayton, Ohio, which is already one strike against him, yeah, right? For you know, sure. He's coming, coming out the bat committing a crime. Um, the crime of being from Ohio. Uh, now, I, I, yeah, anyway, um, James was one of two children born to Benjamin and Stella. His dad worked in a manufacturing company as a superintendent, and his mom was a homemaker. We have vanishingly little detail on his childhood, but we can make some assumptions based on when and where he grew up. Uh, he was likely raised in an environment of casual, pervasive misogyny and male supremacy. Sex probably was not discussed openly by his parents or in school. Mm-hmm. The first sex ed in a major American city was implemented in Chicago uh, in 1913, about eight years before James was born. And the program was so controversial that it was shuttered almost immediately as a result of outcry from the Catholic Church. They, ah. they launched a massive protest campaign, forced the Chicago superintendent of schools, Ella Young, to resign. Um, I was going to so, say yeah. Midwest. I was like, that seems like a, a, a yeah. very not happening. Like, I mean... It's simultaneously like, yeah, it makes sense that it would get shut down, but also like, good on you, Chicago. They tried, yeah. right? Like they tried yeah. before L.A. or anywhere, you know. They gave it a shot. Um, didn't work, but you got to give them. You got to give L.A. Young points for trying at least. Not the Catholic Church. Don't give the Catholic Church points for a lot. No. <laughs> 
I know we both thought of things to say, but sometimes it's best <laughs> not yeah. to make those Catholic Church jokes. Throwing their dick around everywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that did get them in a lot of trouble eventually. Um, mm-hmm. But not enough at the same time. Um, what we're saying is Sinead O'Connor was right. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> the federal government would not take any kind of stance on the matter of like whether or not sex ed was a good idea until 1918. Uh, and what forced their hand was the sheer devastating frequency of STDs among American soldiers during World War I. Like, the government was like, we don't, we don't want any part in this. And then our military readiness was compromised by fucking. Um, <laughs> it was suddenly an issue that had to be dealt with. Just like, oh my God, we're losing a lot of men from venereal disease. Dudes are itching themselves off the <laughs> yeah, battlefields. Yeah, yeah, this is yeah, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are leaping off of battleships and into the ocean to quiet the crabs. We should probably say something. <laughs> <laughs> um, the chamberlain Kahn Act was America's first federal law regarding sex education, and it was passed to provide funding to teach soldiers about syphilis and gonorrhea. This had the positive impact of spurring large numbers of Americans to view sex as a public health issue, which is... Broadly speaking, an improvement from where things were. Uh, it also inspired school districts around the nation to copy the military in hosting sex ed programs in secondary schools. And this was a thoroughly mixed bag um, because they weren't teaching how to have healthy sex. They weren't teaching about how sex can function in a relationship. They weren't like it was just purely trying to scare kids about VD. You know, like that was the whole all of sex ed was just trying to frighten children about the fact that their their genitals were going to rot off if they had sex was everyone still on the abstinence only like was that happening in this era i think that attitude was so pervasive that they didn't have an abstinence only movement it was just assumed that like yeah it's bad to fuck before marriage and obviously all of the men are but like i don't even think there was a movement because it was so such a pervasive like accepted thing yeah, throughout the 1920s, when James Burt was a little kid, sex ed grew increasingly common. When he was in school, he probably watched a film called The Gift of Life from the terrifyingly named American Social Hygiene Association, which is, <laughs> yeah, that's a nightmare organization name right there. Uh, the movie warned children about the, quote, solitary vice, which was masturbation, and cautioned, masturbation may seriously hinder a boy's progress towards vigorous manhood it is a selfish childish stupid habit interesting word choice with the vigorous love that yeah vigorous (laughs) also don't you think masturbation that would help prevent vd i don't you know we talk about this in the the kellogg episodes which are airing the week we record this but like there was a widespread belief that it would kill you that like it would drive you insane and you would die Not totally wrong, but... (laughs) Uh, I mean, depends on how you do it, I guess. But yeah, you'll also notice that they specifically say, like, masturbation is a thing that that boys do that is bad for them. This is because even discussing... Even even to like even discussing female sexuality in order to like discourage masturbation was kind of too risque, you know. Mm. Like acknowledging that it happened would be a bridge too far for these people. Now, thanks to an English teacher named Lucy Curtis, a number of secondary school teachers in the twenties and thirties also attempted to teach sex ed through English literature, which allowed them to avoid talking directly about biology. Uh, instead, they would draw comparisons to health lessons, sex health lessons from passages in classical works. Miss Curtis advised teachers. Quote, 
Read to them Lancelot's wild, passionate quest for the Holy Grail, and they will enter into the bitter experience of a soul which has rendered itself incapable of receiving the full spiritual blessing through the sin of yielding to impure desire. So, like... You're going to teach them about fucking have them read King Arthur's tales. They'll understand that the Holy Grail is sex. Totally. <laughs> yeah, that'll work. That's why the Crucible stopped our generation from fucking. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so in the 1930s, when James Burt was a teenager and had his adolescence, sex ed grew increasingly formal. The U.S. Department of Education started publishing materials to train teachers during this period. Most of these early classes focused entirely on warning children against masturbation and scaring them with exaggerated stories of the dangers of STDs. Female masturbation was seldom discussed. Even teaching about the negatives of sex could be dangerous. In 1933, when Mexico's socialist government proposed compulsory sex ed for public schools, Mexico City erupted into riots. Um, so there were riots in a few countries about the concept of teaching sex ed that wasn't just don't. Oh, like, shit. Yeah, people, people murdered each other over this stuff. Good shit. And of course, Mexico City, the Catholic Church was behind that one, too. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah. Now, the most influential progressive voice on sex ed during James's teen years would have been Margaret Sanger, uh, who is a very problematic figure on her own, um, was a big eugenicist. But Sanger also made huge waves for arguing that sex for the sake of pleasure was acceptable. And she did this by urging people to use birth control, right? She had other motives for it. But the mere fact that you're saying birth control is the option and not abstinence means that you're acknowledging people can have sex and it's it's okay, you know? Um, so that was a big deal for a lot of folks. It was the sign of kind of a shifting in the winds. Um, now, again, there were major eugenicist implications for a lot of her beliefs, but the positive angle of it is that she was increasingly pushing forward a conversation that said, it's okay if married men and women have sex for fun, um, you know? Which is something. In 1936, Sanger helped push forward a Supreme Court case that overturned the Comstock Law, which had ruled both birth control devices and information about birth control obscene and thus illegal. Um, so, like, talking about birth control was illegal because it was, it was pornography, basically. Oh, my God. That's so fucked up. That's like the Instagram yeah. advertising policy of president, mm -hmm. present day. Yeah, yeah, the Comstock law was that for everything, and Sanger helps overturn it. The Supreme Court is like, oh, you know, it turns out the First Amendment means you can talk about condoms, <laughs> like, <laughs> which is fun. Um, I mean, it's a good law to overturn because it sucked. Uh, by the time James Burt was 17 or 18, he would have been able to finally receive sex ed information that wasn't entirely focused around syphilis or the evils of whacking it. Uh, James graduated in 1939 and went to Auburn University, where he met his future wife, Lucretia Perry. He received his undergraduate degree after a transfer from Alabama Polytechnic Institute in 1942. He next attended medical school, and he married Lucretia in the early 1940s before graduating with his medical degree in 1945. I haven't found good information on what precisely inspired James to get into medicine, but based on his later actions, we can safely assume that he found himself gravitating most to the subject of reproductive and sexual health. We know he paid close attention to developing sex research of the day. He would have followed the developing work of a sex science pioneer named Alfred Kinsey. Kinsey was a former biologist who'd gone from studying wasps to studying human sex after he started teaching a course on marriage for Indiana University and realized that there was basically zero good research documenting the sex lives of normal humans. And Kinsey's a controversial figure, too. There's some good criticisms of the guy. Um, but his research is like... <laughs> I love that that gets you a little bit hard, Robert. You're what? like, yeah, 
There's some there's some stuff about that guy too. <laughs> there's there we might talk about there's some like weird weird <laughs> shit with Kinsey. Um like genital torture stuff that What? Uh, yeah, there's some weird shit with Kinsey. I'm not going to I'm not competent at the moment to talk about it. Um but like Kinsey there's there's some very there's some very founded critiques of him. You also if you're studying like sex health, you have to talk about Kinsey cuz he was the of first course. first person pushing this research. Uh, and I'm going to quote from an honors thesis by Lauren Lavin for the University of South Dakota here. In 1948, soon after beginning the Institute for Sex Research, Kinsey published one of the most influential pieces of literature in American sex history, Sexual Behavior of the Human Male. Five years later, in 1953, he published Sexual Behavior of the Human Female. The books contained controversial information for the time, as they detailed topics such as homosexuality, premarital sex, and even bestiality. Yet this illicit information intrigued the public, and the books quickly rose to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. The most notably controversial information presented was the occurrence of homosexuality in America. At this point, homosexual acts were illegal, yet Kinsey's reports detailed many people having homosexual encounters. He estimated that 10% of the population was homosexual. This statistic, now known to be higher than the actual percentage of 4.5%, was shocking to American citizens. The books also contained innovative new measures for sex research. The Kinsey scale, still used in sex research today, is a graduated scale from 0 to 6 that measures the level of homosexual orientation in an individual, with zero being entirely heterosexual and six being entirely homosexual. The scale was an important finding in research, as it provided the basis for homosexual research in a reliable way to measure homosexuality going for- forward. Um, and yeah, it's one of those things. Also, I don't want to say that like 4.5% is the definite percentage of, of homosexuality. Like, I don't think we totally. have per- perfect data on that. Now, and Kinsey's data wasn't perfect, but he was the first person who was studying this and not condemning it. it was just like, this is the thing that people do. Let's try mm-hmm. to understand it, you know? Which is, you, you get a lot of credit for that in my book. And again, like 1952 <laughs> or 48, 1948, sorry. Like, that's, that's, uh, he's very ahead of his time. Totally. Um, yeah. Um, and he, he also like, started carrying out it wasn't just like the thing that kind of first brought him to prominence was his, his these kind of frank discussions of homosexuality but he started also discussing just like heterosexual sex life in a way that hadn't been before where it was just kind of trying to understand what people do and not judging it not not approaching mm-hmm. it from any kind of moral or religious territory just just this is a thing people do let's try to understand how common different things are when Kinsey's study went viral James Burt was working for the US Air Force Medical Corps which he joined to avoid getting drafted He did a residency next at a hospital in Chicago and eventually wound up performing his residency at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York City. He finally received his medical license in June of 1951 from the state of Ohio and moved back home to Dayton in the first of what would become a major series of poor decisions. (laughs) Uh, This is a very anti-Ohio podcast. I think we're, we're open about that. Yep. You ever been to Ohio, Courtney? First mistake. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, everyone who's been knows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a great response. <laughs> yeah. I know some lovely people from Ohio. Oh, sure. There's great people Ohio, from everywhere. Uh, yes. Yeah. But, <laughs> but not, not Ohio. a prize. <laughs> Should have been a lake, is all I'll say. Um, we got, we don't have enough lakes and we have too much Ohio. That's, that's all I'll say on the matter. Fair enough, Robert. So, James Burt 
started his own practice, which was focused on gynecology and obstetrics. And he started his practice the year before Kinsey wrote his book on female sexuality. Um, Bert was not board certified in gynecology or at or, or in obstetrics, but that did, was not oh, a barrier no. to practicing in those at the time. I don't know if it is today, but at the time, you could do as long as you were a doctor, you could you could you could practice gynecology and obstetrics without being board certified in them. Um, so he starts his practice, and less than a year later, he and his wife separate. Uh, and he files for divorce. This was a fairly rare thing at the time, although not as rare as you'd think. The divorce rate um, in the 1950s was about 2.3 people for every 1,000 Americans, compared to about 3.9 per every 1,000 Americans today. Um, we're actually, we've actually been seeing divorce rates decline over the last like decade or so. We're at like the same level we were in 1968, I think. Interesting. What yeah. was the reason for the divorce? Was he just like, I saw a lot of pussies this year. We're going to talk I, about I that. I got to get out. Yeah. The James Burt story involves a lot of divorce. So <laughs> the couple had two sons and a daughter who seemed to have gone with their mother. I don't think he kept the kids. It's, I, I haven't heard any sort of evidence that makes me believe the kids stayed with him. We know very little about their situation because, again, he's divorcing her in the early 50s. Women don't have a lot of illegal. You can't have a, a bank account as a woman. Totally. In that, in that oh time, my god. You know. Um, so yeah, we know that Bert was the one who filed for divorce. He claimed his wife was unhappy with his financial situation, but this could very well be a lie because he was making a lot of money at this point. He's a doctor, you know, and he's throughout his career a very successful one. Um, this could also be a lie because in 1953, a few months after he filed for divorce, when the divorce was still pending, James Bert traveled to Mexico, got a divorce in. Mexico without his wife's involvement and immediately married married his second wife Jerry in Indiana. Oh <laughs> so, shit. Yeah. The first bitch just got a letter in the mail like, "Okay, we're done." We're Mexican divorced. It's taking too long in America. We're Mexico divorced. And this will come up later, but you can't do that. If you're married in the United States and you file for divorce and then just decide to go to Mexico to get it doesn't count. Like that's not the way the law works, you know? <laughs> like so he's this is technically bigamy he's still married to his first wife when he marries his second wife uh gary is that or, true though sorry that what? is fascinating can you not like if i get is that still true today if i get married in the united states can i only get divorced in the united states i don't know if you can only get divorced but if you start divorce proceedings here and then move to another country without the consent of your spouse to get a divorce it doesn't count right yeah seems like you would definitely need consent yeah, I'm sure you could like if you were like, oh, well, I've moved. I've since moved to this other country. I'm going to initiate divorce proceedings here instead of initiating them. In, I'm sure that would work, but it does not work the way he did it because he was clearly <laughs> just fleeing to Mexico to get a piece of paper that said that he could get another like it, what he was doing was very deliberately shady, you know, um, for sure. So Gary and James moved into a modern one-story house with a swimming pool in a wealthy suburban neighborhood of Dayton, which further undercuts his claim that his wife was unhappy with their finances, because, again, he was making a lot of money. I think he was just trying to say, like, she's a gold digger. That's why we're mm -hmm. splitting up, you know? And for re things that come later, I, I'm certain he's lying about this first divorce. Yeah, um, what a, what a yeah. lame trope, bro. <laughs> yeah. 
So the couple had one child, and for a few years, seems things seemed to be relatively normal for the young doctor and his growing family. But appearances were, in this case, deceiving. A major part of James's job as an obstetrician involved repairing episiotomies. At the time, the vast majority of women who birthed children went through an episiotomy, which is a surgical cut made at the opening of the vagina to ease childbirth. This is not as common today, but back in those days, doctors believed it made the birth safer. It was easier on the child's head. Um, and so it was, it was the norm. In some hospitals, 85% of births included an episiotomy. Now Damn. things are different. It's not. It's still done sometimes, but it was just like almost every doctor would just do it basically every time. It was just kind of the standard thing is this makes it safer for the baby. So we're just going to we're just going to cut her open. Um now, it was not strictly necessary in most births. And again, there's a lot of people who will say like this was an injury. And it was, you know, it was it was like unnecessary surgery for a lot of people who received it um, at the time. The reason this doctors would just do this because doctors would not ask the mother before doing this. Right. Um, and this was not just an, an episiotomy thing. At the time, consent was not a priority in medicine for anyone, men or women. Your doctor told you what you were going to get and you would do it. Um, doctors were probably the most trusted people in the country at this point. It was a different era, and it was just sort of the norm for a doctor to say, this is what needs to happen, and for the patient to just kind of let it happen. Um, and they wouldn't tell you a lot of the time. They were, like With an episiotomy, they probably wouldn't say, here's what'll happen, unless you specifically ask. Like It's just, well, you're going to just get snip, having snip. a child, I'm going to knock you out with drugs and do what's necessary to get the kid out, you know? Oh like my that, God. That's how it worked at the time. We're going to talk a lot about the history of medical consent in this episode. Um, but it was not a thing in the 50s, right? Like, just not a standard thing. Episiotomies were so normal that physicians often did not discuss it at all prior to the birth. Um, this was despite the fact that many women hated the operation, which was extremely painful and permanently altered many people's ability to enjoy, enjoy vaginal sex after childbirth. Like most obstetricians, Dr. Burt performed a lot of episiotomies. And then as a matter of course, he would carry out a repair of the episiotomy afterwards. You would try to fix it. And there was like a saying that like you would give him an extra stitch, you know, to tighten things up, totally. to make it more pleasurable. Yeah. Um, and the more he did this Gotta repair love surgery, the patriarchy. Just yeah. <laughs> inserting themselves at every stage <laughs> yeah yeah oh god let me fix it let me fix it let me fix it yeah and i I'm, I'm bringing all this up because james burt is uniquely shitty among obstetricians in this period but like they're all doing some shady stuff yeah. like some stuff that we it wasn't shady by the standards of the day but now now you you look at medical science in that period and you're like okay <laughs> that's a little messed up <laughs> Um, yeah, so the more he repaired episiotomies, the more he started to have ideas. And I'm going to quote from a write-up on the website Medical Bag to explain how what he started we thinking about. We all know about. what happens when men have ideas. Do not recommend. Quote, The doctor believed that women lost all or part of their ability to have an orgasm following childbirth as a result of their vagina becoming too loose post-delivery, claiming that women's vaginas were, quote, large enough to drive a truck through sideways after childbirth. Oh That's my Dr. Burt's writing on the matter. I oh, yeah. <laughs> This is distressing. It's, it's going to get worse. Oh it's going to get worse. As yeah, it, as it normally does on this podcast. As it, as it does a hundred percent of the time on this show. Drive a truck through Drive sideways. Drive a stuff? truck through sideways. That Don't is what the doctor words, wrote, buddy. <laughs> no, no. But you know what? Where are you going with that, buddy? A lot of trucks because 
global capitalism is heavily reliant upon semis in order to transport goods and services across great distances? I mean, you oh really pulled that shit together. I <laughs> thank have you, to thank say, you, thank you, thank yeah. you, thank you, yeah. Would that, would that be the products and services that support this podcast? Absolutely is the products and services that support this podcast. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. 
She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. We're back, and we're just not going to think too much about that ad transition. So, yeah, uh, Dr. Burke decided to fix all that. Between 1954 and 1966, Burke began experimenting on unknowing, unconscious patients with his own variations of the standard episiotomy repair after childbirth. Known for his heavy hand with anesthesia, Burke had human canvases on which to experiment after delivery. He's a knock him out doctor, and he just starts fiddling around in there, you know, just kind of like shit. experimenting. Were these the days of operating theaters or was that over? Was he like, come on in, boys? <laughs> She's totally knocked out and I'm going to try a few things. <laughs> he's on his own, I think. I think sometimes okay. he has nurses, but he's on his own. Um, now, the exact nature of the surgeries he carried out varied over time. At first, he mostly focused on making the vaginal opening tighter to try and make vaginas smaller and tighter and improve the sexual experience of the husbands of his patients, mainly. But in the late 1950s, Dr. Burt started reading the then newly published work of William Masters and Virginia Johnson. Their work was groundbreaking for many reasons, but among them was the scientific data it provided on the fact that the clitoris played a key role in causing orgasms. Dr. Burt synthesized this finding with his own findings over years of experimental episiotomy repairs. The women he'd given his modified surgery to, he claimed, told him their sexual experience had improved after childbirth. James Burt began to develop his own theories about human vaginas and sexual responsiveness. From a book titled The Love Surgeon by Sarah Rodriguez, quote, Central to Burt's ideas about female sexuality in the surgery he was developing were his ideas about the role of the clitoris in female orgasm. Prior to very recently, Burt wrote, the medical consensus had been that a, that a vaginal orgasm was mature and orgasm from manipulation of the clitoris was immature, and thus the ultimate return of the vagina to normal by repair after childbirthing was completed seemed adequate. But this, he noted, did not consider the role of the clitoris. So in 1963, nearly a decade into his casual experimenting with vaginas, James Burt's second wife filed for divorce. Since she is the one who filed, we're able to look at this divorce through the lens of someone besides Dr. Burt. Gary reported that her husband had, quote, struck and physically abused her from time to time. She, Yeah, she asked that her husband be kept away from her and that their mutually held assets be protected from him. This was not an amicable divorce. James fought back, claiming that he ought not have to pay his wife alimony because, and this is just an incredible line of argument, his divorce from his first wife still had not been legally completed in the United States, and thus his marriage to Gary had never been technically legal. So that's his his defense to paying alimony is, well, I got married to her illegally. I was breaking oh the law when we got married, God. so why would I pay alimony? <laughs> He's like, however the paperwork lines up to best serve me, do we know if he did any fucked up uh, stuff to her vagina? We do not. She had kids with him. So Aww. probably. But but I, I don't know. I, I have not run into confirmation of that. Also, maybe not, because it is it is kind of uncommon, at least now, I assume it was then too, for doctors to, you know, deliver their own children, yeah. right? Like that's considered like maybe not the best idea. Uh -huh. um, so maybe it was someone else who did it and he didn't have a chance to get in there. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen any sort of confirmation or denial of that. 
but it was definitely not not a friendly divorce. Uh, the judge was not convinced by this line of argument, which is honestly kind of surprising for the time. Um, but he awarded Gary alimony and child support, and their divorce was finalized in 1966. That same year, Masters and Johnson published a book, Human Sexual Response, which dedicated an entire chapter to the clitoris, which they labeled, quote, a unique organ in the total of human anatomy, because its only purpose was sexual. They described it as an organ system which is totally limited in physiologic function to in- initiating or elevating levels of sexual tension, um, which was a big finding at the time. And it kind of like it went against a lot of the existing ideas about female sexuality, which had often just sort of seen it that it was like it was a, ver- a variant of male sexuality, right? Like female sexuality is just kind of like mm-hmm. a lesser version of male sexuality. Women don't enjoy sex as much. Like it's not as big a deal for them. They're not sexual beings in the way that men are. And the Masters and Johnson's research kind of blows that out of the water because like women are the only, like have have an entire organ that's just dedicated to sexual responsiveness. Um, yeah, it's pretty great. It's pretty, it's, it's great. So this is like an important sort of in the, in the history of like understanding human sexuality, this idea that like, no, no, human beings are, are all sexual beings as opposed to like, it's just, just people with, you know, penises. Yeah. So outside of that, um, yeah, it, 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 this this was like a bombshell in medical science at the time. And Dr. Burt was as influenced by this finding as everyone else. Unfortunately, he also fell into a failure of deduction that similarly plagued Dr. William Masters. Both men were physicians, and as a result, they both saw sex and issues with sex in strictly physical and conventionally medical terms. The social aspects of sexual dysfunction, like unequal power dynamics Mm. or abuse within a relationship, were boiled out. It was just purely a matter of like, oh, these are how the mechanics of sex work. And it's like, well, totally. it's not it's not just a matter of hydraulics. You know, there's a lot yeah. that goes on in, in sex. Um, female sexual problems then were blamed on purely physical matters. And I'm going to quote again from the love surgeon here. According to Bert, he had not informed any of these women, the women he'd done surgery on, that he had done anything other than a standard episiotomy repair. The combination of realizing the importance of the clitoris and sex for women and that the modification he had made to episiotomy repair was improving the sex lives of his patients led Bert to conclude that women's bodies were not anatomically ideal for heterosexual sex. For Bert, female bodies were pathological when it came to heterosexual intercourse. Based on the research of Masters and Johnson and the information about the improved sex lives he stated he heard from his patients, Bert decided the clitoris was too far from the opening of the vagina for women to receive adequate stimulation <laughs> from the penis during heterosexual missionary position sex. So, he's got notes! <laughs> <laughs> oh my uh, god, amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Little bit of feedback for God mm-hmm. or nature mm-hmm. or whoever you did fucking it wrong. made this. <laughs> Don't worry, I got it figured out. <laughs> yeah that's amazing hubris like that's a whole a whole nother level (laughs) like uh, it's 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 something else um so yeah he started to modify the again significant surgical procedure he'd already been performing on his patients without consent for more than a decade up to that point he'd mostly focused on making the vagina tighter now he started building up skin tissue in order to move the vaginal opening closer to the clitoris this procedure also changed the angle of the vaginal opening bert later bragged that under what he started calling his love surgery quote uh, the vagina it, yeah i know don't it's just, so bad, don't right just- God the damn love it. surgery. 
Like, you just need to learn how to eat a pussy and then this will all just go no, away. No, 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 That's That is not at all acceptable to Dr. James Burt. It is, it is, I mean, it's a matter of like, there's a lot that, we'll talk about this more, there's a lot that's wrapped up in it. Part of it is just this mix of men wanting to feel like they're sexual dynamos and also men not wanting to do anything but missionary sex. Um and so the whole the whole idea that Bert has is like, well, I'll just make it easier for women to orgasm from from purely missionary sex, and that will make men that will improve relationships because men will be sexual powerhouses. Then, like that, it's it's this idea of like, well, I shouldn't have to learn to pleasure my partner. I'll alter her physiology. <laughs> oh my god! Just five surgeries later, yeah. it'll be yeah. perfect. It was usually just one nine hour surgery, if that makes oh, it better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, he moved the vagina towards the clitoris. He also pulled a significant amount of the labia minora into the vagina. Oh my because he be- God. Yeah. To make it pretty? <laughs> no, he thought it would cause greater stimulation during vaginal sex. I say that he's doing all these things, and he says he's getting feedback. He's not telling these women what he's doing. So he's not being like, so I did all this stuff to your bits. How does it feel? He was just like, how's sex after childbirth? And they'd be all like, oh, it's a lot better than it was, you know, when I was pregnant. And he'd be like, oh, that means the surgery works. He's not asking them, how about this? How about, he's not like t- getting, he's not even getting, not that it would be okay if he was, but he's not actually oh getting God. scientific data on this. He's just being like, they say sex is better. It must work. <laughs> like, so he doesn't know. He's saying that I know my surgery is improving sex. He doesn't know if it's, number one, he doesn't actually know that it's improving sex they might just be like yeah now that i don't have you know i'm no longer pregnant i'm enjoying sex more which which could make sense Mm -hmm. he's he's not he doesn't know if like oh is moving the opening or moving the clitoris or is moving the labia minora like what is it that's improving things if any of it's having an impact because he's not actually doing science he's just kind of futzing around down there did he get any complaints we don't know yet he does okay this is the 60s so and they don't know it, what's so being done So he's calling it love surgery, but isn't telling any of his patients he is what he's doing. He's not telling any of his patients at this point what he's doing. His research is, hey, you were pregnant and now you're not. How's, sex How's the yeah. sex? Yeah. And it's self-reported. So like, if he yeah. did get some complaints, he's probably not going to tell other no, people about that. Exactly, exactly. And also, like, it, no offense, but I'm not out here like talking to my ob being like yeah sex great well yeah especially and and that's 2021 like not in the 60s and if you i'm I'm sure some because some of these women do later go to other doctors to be like what has happened to me (laughs) and i'm gonna guess that happened at this period but a lot of those doctors are like well it's just pregnancy you know pregnancy (laughs) changes stuff down there leave like get out of my office you know like there's nothing i can do for you this is just what happens what Um, a nightmare yeah it's horrible it's gotta get worse um of course it so is. bring it on yeah in 1967 james burt finally succeeded in getting a legal divorce from his first wife so he could marry his third wife linda <laughs> by this point he was one of the most successful and thus wealthiest obstetricians in ohio he and his new wife bought property in el salvador and the dominican republic i'm sure nothing shady 
with either of those transactions. They also bought a condo in Vail, Colorado, so they wouldn't have to spend as much time in the blighted hellscape that is Ohio. With Dayton, within Dayton, the Burts gained a reputation for being ostentatious and somewhat kinky rich people. They held huge <laughs> pool parties that were swimsuit optional. James Burt ro- wore gold chains and long fur coats in the winter. On at least one occasion, he wore a pink safar- safari suit at one of the parties he threw. Are there he photos? N- not that I found. <laughs> He was not particularly social with or popular among his fellow doctors. One of his colleagues bluntly stated that James didn't enjoy golf because he, quote, preferred indoor games. And you can translate Uh that however you want. Yeah. So he's like a kind of probably kind of like a swinger dude in this period. I'm guessing a lot of key parties at the Burt residence, you know? Sure. In 1973, James's third marriage fell apart when Linda left her husband for a ski instructor she'd met in Vail. Yes, yeah. yes, now, karma is real. <laughs> maybe, so not not really, because it's unclear if she left him before or after he started living with a 21-year-old. Oh, um, girl. <laughs> I know, every little bit of hope. <laughs> yeah. He was 46 at the time. In short order, he duly married this much younger woman whose name was Joan, uh, and they stayed together for a while. Uh, to his credit, he did wait until after he and his third wife had a legal divorce to get married to his fourth, fourth wife. Joan and James bought a yacht on Lake Erie. She wore diamonds constantly. The couple did not grow any more popular among James's colleagues. Walter Reeling Jr., a Dayton physician who worked near Dr. Burt, later claimed that other doctors and their spouses avoided the Burts at social gatherings in the 70s. No one, he claims, wanted to sit at a table with them. Sarah Rodriguez writes, quote, Partly this was because of the manner in which the Burts behaved at such dinners. Both Walter Reeling and his wife Susie Reeling recollected how Joan Burt, decked out in furs, would be physically all over her husband during medical society dinners, talking a lot and bragging about how many orgasms she enjoyed. James Burt apparently did not seek out friendships with other physicians, and Walter Reeling could not recall a physician who sought out Burt's friendship. So, a lot of PDA that everyone finds kind of creepy, right? Sex positive here, but if you're like sitting at a dinner talking about how often you orgasm at like a professional dinner with your colleagues, kind of weird. Kind of weird. (laughs) Kind of weird. That, not the time for that kind of conversation, you know? Um, there are times. But he's an OB. This is yeah. related to work. Yeah, like, does he think he's like Jordan Belfort and like the Wolf of Wall Street, the wife with the diamonds on the yacht? He's like, got bro. strong Jordan Belfort energy. That's um, literally what I'm, yeah. I'm like, dog, come on, bro. By the mid-1970s, Dr. Burt had added yet another step to his love surgery. Some of his patients had complained of pain during sex after his operation. No, he decided really? the mo- Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now, obviously, it, it couldn't be that his operation was a bad idea. It had to no. be that there was yet another problem with female anatomy that needed to be corrected. He decided the most likely culprit was the pubococcygeus muscle, which is a constrictor muscle at the rear wall of the vagina that supports the uterus, ovaries, fallopian tubes, bowel, bladder, and vagina. This is the organ that you control when you do Kegels, right? That's that's the muscle that he decides is the problem. It is extremely important. It provides control not over just vaginal feeling, but urination and 
defecation. It's a very important muscle to have. James cut it because he no. decided it was getting hit during <laughs> penetrative intercourse and causing pain, which made it harder for his patients to orgasm. Again, none of them told him to do this, nor was he carrying out medical research to determine if the pubococcygeus muscle was in fact interfering with sexual pleasure. He just sort of assumed it was the culprit and in his words, decided to, quote, cut the damn muscle. <laughs> Oh, my God. Pretty bad. <laughs> like, yeah, I come real easy, but cannot stop wetting myself mm-hmm. and shitting everywhere. Yeah. Which might have an impact on, I don't know, a lot of things. Um, it wasn't like he's not totally severing it, but he's severing it enough that it, it does cause problems with incontinence and stuff for a lot of his patients. We'll talk about that later. So... Later on, once knowledge of his love surgery was public, many of his patients would come forward with complaints that love surgery had made them incontinent. We don't know what percentage of them suffered this way, because in the mid-70s, he still was not telling anyone what he was doing. This was now 20 years into his experiments with love surgery. Yeah, so we we don't know what percentage of his patients suffered incontinence as a result of the surgery, because in the mid-1970s, he still wasn't telling anyone what he was doing. And this is now 20 years into his experimenting with love surgery. Bert, of course, claims to have heard almost universally positive reports from his patients about their post-childbirth sex lives. By 1975, he claims to have performed his love surgery on more than 4,000 women. Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah. That's some good shit. Um, It's not. It's terrible. Uh, It's some bad shit. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of people getting surgery they that absolutely did not ask for. That is the size of my hometown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is a town worth of... That's most of Ohio, I have to assume. Um, <laughs> but you know what isn't most of Ohio? I don't even know where... Go ahead. I mean, Ohio does advertise on our show. Well, that's what I was going to say. We could get an yeah. Ohio ad and like you could be factually wrong. And for the record, if if there's an Ohio ad, don't listen to it. Do not move to Ohio under any circumstances. Yeah, no like, idea just, why just Ohio get, felt Get on need, out of there. Like, Ohio, get on out of know, there. Your, know your audience. This is a firmly anti-Ohio Yeah, pod. profoundly You're wasting anti-Ohio. your money here, yeah. Ohio. Yeah. yeah. I mean, less money for Ohio is, is a win for the whole world, but still, I just don't want anyone to move there. Anyway, here's Ed. some ads. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, 
including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About $6 million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So, yeah, Dr. James Byrd is a liar, obviously, so we should take his claims that he performed a surgery on more than 4,000 women with a grain of salt, because there's not documentation of this. Um, but he was one of the most, if not the most popular obstetricians in Dayton in his day. So he, it's a lot. He experimented probably in the low, th- probably at least a couple thousand. 4,000 is probably an exaggeration. He's a narcissist. But 2,000 is <laughs> not out of the, not out of the, possibility you know he's been at it for like a decade right 20 years yeah 20 20 years years. yeah Yeah. he's he's done this a lot um and he was one of the most successful obstetricians in the whole midwest at this point i think the average salary of a doctor in this period is like sixty-two thousand a year which is really good money in you know the 1960s 70s he's making like 400 grand a year holy shit he's extremely successful um his office was on the top floor of a stylish downtown building he had eight exam rooms and a waiting room which included a couch shaped like a woman's mouth 
<laughs> a little bit creepy. Um, it must be said that he was very popular with his patients. Dr. Burt was charming, friendly, and said to have exceptional bedside manner. He listened to his patients in an era in which male doctors were generally expected to ignore the complaints and fears of their female patients. One nurse later recalled that he, quote, communicated with women when a lot of doctors wouldn't. There were a lot of physicians that were patting women on the head and saying, now, sweetie, don't worry, I'll take care of it. Um, and Dr. Burt was not that kind. He would he would explain to you what he was. He wouldn't tell you what he was actually doing, but he would explain to you what he was claiming he was going to do. He right? would make you feel good about handing yes. over all the power. He would make you feel listened to before performing a surgery on you that he did you did not ask for um, and did not know was even a thing that could be done. Um, patients would often claim his office was a refuge. Uh, Dr. Burt would listen to their fears about childbirth and sexual dysfunction, which was not a subject most doctors would even broach. Sarah Rodriguez writes, Burt seemed to sympathize with his patients. Burt's sympathetic ear perhaps appealed to many women as he listened to their worries and fears about their upcoming labors or hysterectomies, and he seems to have believed that he was acting sympathetically toward them by performing love surgery in addition to delivering their child or performing a hysterectomy. In his view, Bert surgically altered their bodies to alleviate their concerns and problems, all of which, regardless of what the women may have been telling or not telling him, he felt were essentially about sex. Yeah, it's, it's good stuff. So, Dr. Burt, uh, of course, performed his love surgery after nearly every childbirth, even on women who never complained to him about having sexual problems. Uh, he performed his love surgery after vaginal hysterectomies, too, and regularly when performing abdominal uterus suspension. So, he was just, he he, well, he stopped just doing this after episiotomies after. You get a surgery, and you get a surgery, and you get a surgery. And Jesus. like And, like, again, is not an OB surgeon, right? Like, I feel like that needs to be stated over and over no. again. That is not his, like, he's not trained. Yeah, I mean, he's trained. He's not board certified. Like, you get training, I guess. Like, he, he he's... Robert, he's job. not trained. Yeah, yeah. He's This is not the thing he should be doing. At the time, it is not illegal for him to be doing this. Um, which is a, fault, a flaw in, I think, I mean, the medical system in this sake, period. I mean, what yeah. the hell? Yeah, as a general rule, if a patient with a vagina was unconscious in front of him, he would he would he would do his love surgery. <laughs> like that that was kind of his like don't you're knocked get out, drunk you have around a vagina. This guy. Uh, definitely don't. Christ, yeah. man. <laughs> One thing that endeared him to his patients were his promises I'm sorry, of a what? What? Endeared talking, he was he, yeah, he was extremely popular during this period. Sophie, all you have to do is it's listen to women. <laughs> But he's, yeah, like, he's he's meeting the lowest bar, which is he's not, like, patting them on the head and saying, there, there, girl, this is, like, du this is adult time. Like, that's what a lot of male doctors do, and he doesn't. He sits there, and he listens, and he takes it serious. And then he does whatever it is he wants. He's not, he's like, a monster. Oh, yeah, I, I hear you. Let me, let me, let me cut you up real quick. Like, what the f all right. Yeah, I'll he's stop. I mean, yes, but like it is important to the story that he's popular during this period. That's part of why he gets so many women to experiment on is he's extremely popular Do we know and extremely successful. Like? You can look up his face. Um, I don't want yeah, to. I think there's pictures of him. Um yeah, you know, he's he's uh, like it it's important that he was so endearing to his patients because that's why they trusted him and that's why so few of them initially 
like recognize that something was awry. Um, he was very popular in part for his promises of pain-free childbirth, which he accomplished by giving expectant mothers huge doses of drugs that rendered them unconscious throughout the whole process. This oh, was yeah. not uncommon for the time, uh, and it gave Bert the ability to more easily do whatever he wanted with his patients, who were, again, canvases to him. By this point, he had come to believe that all female bodies needed fixing because they were badly designed for heterosexual missionary position sex, which he considered the only normal sex act. He believed he was justified in performing his surgery on every vagina he got his hands on because he did not see his surgery as elective. Uh, instead, he was correcting a malformation. <laughs> he thought of it the same way as like a doctor who corrects a cleft palate, right? That's what's going on in this guy's head. Um, sometimes he would even lie to his patients for a chance to get in there and root around. From the New York Times, quote, Miss Phillips was one of the many women who went to Dr. Burt for a relatively minor physical problem. She was told she needed a hysterectomy because her fallopian tubes were rotting. Now she suffers chronic infections, extreme difficulty urinating, and excruciating pain if she attempts intercourse. The strain eventually, eventually destroyed her marriage, she said. Oh Seven hours of surgery completely changed her life. I feel like a freak, Miss Phillips said. I can't date. I can't ride horses. I can't urinate. She characterized surgery as a form of sexual abuse and said, he stole parts of my body which is fair uh yeah that is not there's no jokes even that's so sad no, there's not a joke it's a nightmare <laughs> it's a horrible horrible man who did horrible things um in the in the name of medicine to women who trusted him implicitly um trust no one women trust yeah. no one certainly not a gynecologist who wears fur coats that's 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 the that that ought to be a warning flag. sign. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gynecologists who worked in and around Doctor Bird knew about his surgery and recognized it because they would often examine his former patients. Joy Martin, who was a, a woman he performed his surgery on after delivering her son in 1974, said, "Doctors would say Doctor Bird's done surgery on you, hasn't he?" Um, <gasps> Yeah, because like they 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 would see like she would go in with she went in with complaints and was like what if it feels like something's wrong and they'd be like oh yeah you you had Doctor Bert he switched the holes I don't yeah <laughs> like they they knew what he was doing. Um, it is important to note that while James Burt went much further than any of his colleagues, he was not alone in his obsession with making female bodies better suited for heterosexual intercourse. Joseph Dilley, an early 20th century obstetrician who helped popularize the episiotomy, recommended this surgery and its subsequent repair because it could tighten the vagina and, quote, restore women to virginal conditions. In the 1970s, author and childbirth expert Suzanne Arms would argue that the real reason for this procedure was to increase the ability of husbands to enjoy sex after childbirth. In other words, Dr. Burton and his colleagues framed their various tightening surgeries as being done for women, but their real purpose was to make things more enjoyable for men. By the mid-1970s, public discussion of loose post-childbirth vaginas had become common in popular culture. In 1974, in his best-selling book, How to Get More Out of Sex, psychiatrist David Rubin urged mothers to get vaginal tightening surgery, calling it a simple procedure that could make a woman of 40 almost the same sexually as a girl of 18. No! That's pretty problematic, yeah. Yeah. Not That's great. like on the news. Where where is that happening? Um, yeah, that is a, a book. How to get oh, more out of sex book. by psychiatrist David Rubin. Like that's a mainstream pop psychiatrist uh, being like, get tightened up so you'll be like a teenager. 
men love teenagers. <laughs> you know, it's pretty bad. Um, he claimed surgery could turn back the clock and turn post-birth vaginas from the Carlsbad caverns and back into, and I'm so sorry that I have to read this so phrase. poetic. <laughs> and back, back into the penis's little grotto of pleasure. Oh my fucking God. <laughs> <laughs> David Rubin, everybody. Um, oh. <laughs> pretty bad. Pretty bad. Bad and bad. Bad and bad, for sure. So, divorce rates started to raise during the 1970s. And in 1976, a Cosmopolitan article noted that popular myth blamed some of this on loose vaginas. It argued that one way to keep a couple from splitting up was to, quote, tighten up the vagina in order to enhance the pleasure of intercourse. This article also explicitly urged women to get surgery, saying that while Kegels could help, they were unlikely to go far enough. You wouldn't hesitate to go to a doctor for surgery on a faulty appendix, so why hesitate when the happiness of your sexual life may be at stake? Oh, my fucking God. It's pretty bad. Now, I want to note that an awful lot of mothers got variations on this surgery on their own recognizance and had wonderful experiences. Um, It's still not an uncommon thing to do after childbirth today, and I'm not condemning the practice, just pointing out the extremely sexist way in which it was presented and in which men tended to urge it, because that's important context for why Dr. Burt didn't really think he was doing anything people would have issues with. By the late 1970s, he'd started circumcising his patients' clitorises in order to expose more of the organ and make it more easily stimulated by sexual intercourse. From the love surgeon, quote, Doctors understood the sexual nature of the clitoris and its importance to female sexual pleasure, and thus some blamed the clitoris for a woman's failure to orgasm with her husband. The removal of the clitoral hood was an attempt to fix this concern. Beginning in the late 19th century, at a time when the espousal of female orgasm during marital sex was increasingly seen as an important component of a healthy marriage, physicians performed female circumcision to help married women who wanted, or whose husbands wanted their wives to have, orgasms during vaginal sex. This is also very important. Without understanding this, it might actually look like Dr. Burt, by performing love surgery, was showing more care for the sex lives of his patients than the men urging them to tighten up to avoid divorce. His surgery was focused on giving women more orgasms, but for a profoundly selfish reason, so their husbands would feel like they were good at sex without needing to do foreplay (laughs) or, God forbid, perform oral sex. See... All of the improvements Dr. Burt made weren't actually correcting deficiencies in the vagina. They were correcting deficiencies with standard missionary sex. Many women, maybe even most women, won't regularly uh, orgasm from simple missionary sex alone. This is why foreplay and oral sex and other fucking positions are good things to try. (laughs) Dr. Burt thought thought all of that was abnormal and thus bad, right? The the whole goal is for them to come from this, right? From the kind of sex that lazy men in the 60s most want to give them. How's he going to be a missionary style swinger, though? That's what I want to know. I don't know that he was a swinger. I'm guessing, right? Maybe he was not. Um, Okay. Those people should have exposed him to some more positions. That's all. Yeah. He seems like the kind of guy who was bad enough at sex that he had to perform a legal surgery in order to (laughs) please somebody, you know? Um, It's not great. Um, it's not great. I, lo- I love I love when men are like, no, 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 no. It's not me. It's not me. It has to be the There's structure no way I could of bend a vagina. over and yeah. 
stroke it this way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, man. There's not a whole family of tools that have been invented to, to aid me in this endeavor. Um, there's not a, a whole wide variety of things. Like, if, if, uh, if I can't please you in the laziest way possible, it's time for serious multi-hour-long surgery. By the mid-1970s, James Burt felt that he had finally perfected his surgery. He was ready to share it with the world. So in 1975, he and his wife Joan co-authored Joan. a book together. Yeah, they wrote a book. Joan, they wrote a book. Joan was the- fully drinking the Kool-Aid, but she oh. didn't know any better because she was fucking 25 years younger. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not great. Um, the book was titled... I apologize for this, too. (laughs) Surgery of Love. Now, this was not a medical manual. It was more of a pop medical text that functioned primarily as an advertisement for his love surgery. It is, I feel comfortable saying, one of the most offensive documents ever published. (laughs) In part two, we'll talk about what it said. But that is going to be the end of the episode for today. Courtney, how how are you feeling? Shook. If one word just this is this is a whole this is he yeah. sucks he sucks mm-hmm. and also yeah. you have to be so careful who you entrust your pussy to and yeah. i feel like that still stands today yeah <laughs> forever yeah it it does you want to plug any pluggables yeah Corey. <laughs> um i have a podcast about sex uh we talk about pleasurable sex on my podcast <laughs> private mm-hmm. parts unknown so if you need a little pick me up after this go check it out yeah check out check that out and check out i don't know the history of surgical abuse and problems with consent and medicine check that out on our mm-hmm. next episode actually Woo! podcast I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. 
It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.